North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. The following episode is a crossover from the CSIS Korea Chair's live YouTube series, The Capital Cable, which provides cutting-edge analysis of events on the Korean Peninsula and how these events impact the United States and Asia. All right, good morning, everybody in the United States. Good evening, everyone in Korea. Good day to everybody around the world. I'm Mark Lippert. We have a great lineup here today. We have a very special guest, uh, Ambassador Caroline Kennedy. She was served as United States Ambassador to Tokyo from 2013 to 2017. She's an attorney, a writer, editor, diplomat, of course. Uh, also went to Harvard undergraduate, Columbia Law School. Welcome, Ambassador Kennedy. Uh, Thanks to so this, much for uh, having me. Oh, we're, we're, we're honored we're, and we're gratified. I've been hearing about this get-together at bi-weekly, so I'm so honored that I finally uh, got to join. Well, <laughs> you know, I think we, we had to up our game. We've dusted the place up, did some spring cleaning, Victor and I, and took out the trash. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, we're, we're ready to go. Uh, and, of, and of course, we've got our uh, usual panelists, Victor Cha and Dr. Sumi Terry. Welcome to both. I'm just going to say a few things in the introduction, then we're going to get right into it. The trilateral relationship between the United States, Republic of Korea, Japan, as well as the two bilateral uh, pieces to that, Washington, Seoul, Washington, Tokyo, are critical pieces uh, to the geopolitical and geostrategic environment in Northeast Asia. Embedded in that are very difficult relations between Korea and Japan, and they are sensitive, they are emotional, they are some of the toughest issues on which to engage. We're not going to look at those issues in depth today. We don't have folks from the Korean and Japanese side, even at a track two level. But what we are going to do is look at these sets of relationships, trilateral, the two bilateral alliances, through the eyes of what uh, Mike Green likes to call U.S. alliance managers. And we, of course, have uh, a very special guest star in Carolyn Kennedy to uh, walk us through some of these issues along with Sue and Victor. But before we get to that, I would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of this and, and answer demand signal from our audience to ask Ambassador Kennedy to take a step back at some of her experiences in Japan and Northeast Asia. And if, if you don't mind, Ambassador, I'm going to ask a couple of questions here and just get right into it. When you came to Japan, you were not someone who'd spent a great deal of time there, although you had been there before in the late 70s and other times in your personal uh, and professional career. But it seemed to me that the Japanese people were quite familiar with you, with your family. Can you speak to that and speak to what it was like coming to Tokyo and, and being in and around that environment? Well, I hadn't really anticipated the depth of affection and admiration for my father that existed in Japan. I would have thought perhaps in Europe, um, but I was really uh, overwhelmed by the kind of outpouring. Uh, and I think that it stemmed both from his uh, service as in the Pacific War and then having uh, the child of a Pacific War veteran sort of brought that history back up, but also his presidency, because Japan, as we know, has an older population and many, many people there 
uh, remembered that time. And um, his presence, he coincided with Japan's sort of emergence onto the world stage after the war. Um, and I think that it was a moment of hope and sort of optimism uh, that he created. And um, so many people there uh, among the kind of older generation or the generation in power really, you know, would come up to me and quote the inaugural address and things like that. So it, it really gave me a sense in a way, people say um, Japan is a hard society to enter into, but I feel like people thought they knew me a little bit. And so that made it a lot easier for me to be the ambassador. And it meant a lot to me personally because it allowed me to reconnect with his history in the war and many of those issues we were observing the 70th anniversary of the end of the war, 50th anniversary of Japan-Korea relations. So there was a lot of kind of looking back as well as looking forward. And I feel like as the first woman, um, I was something new, but as somebody who was the child of a veteran and a president uh, who had hoped to go to Japan in his second term, I was something familiar. So I think it was turned out to be a very good moment, um, both, I mean, for me, it was a wonderful experience, but also in terms of the relationship with President Obama, so committed to both nonproliferation and disarmament, as well as to strengthening our alliances in Asia. Well, Ambassador, let me get to, you, you raised a, a number of follow-up questions here, but let me get to a couple. First, your father worked on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, if I'm not mistaken. And could you talk about that in the context of your uh, ambassadorship in Tokyo? Well, the um, Cuban Missile Crisis, as probably most people know, really was um, sort of the defining crisis of his presidency. And um, it then led to the limited nuclear test ban treaty, which banned atmospheric testing, uh, and really was the proudest I think accomplishment of his presidency, uh, according to my mother and my uncles. And so that really obviously kind of had a direct link back to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think I had been there with my uncle Teddy as a college student. And I think that he worked nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation issues throughout his career as well. And President Obama in the Senate had made that as a signature issue, as you know. And um, so I think that they were, those threads were very much continuing in that shared set of ideals. And so there was a real effort to get Japan and Korea to come together with others during the Nuclear Security Summit, President Obama, and then culminating in his visit to Hiroshima, which was, uh, he was the first sitting president to visit that. So I think for me, it had a tremendous emotional, personal resonance felt, I felt sort of a connection back to my father and his presidency in those issues, but also it really shows us that those issues are just um, always with us and require continued effort by all of us. No, thanks for that, Ambassador. It's great, great stuff, really powerful. Uh, I will say that I did a little homework on this issue yesterday. I talked to Ben Rhodes, who was with you, uh, during that visit and wrote a lot of the, the president's speech. And he said that your drive determination in the White House decision-making processes was instrumental in uh, sure he getting that. exactly those words, right. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, he did say that without your force in the decision-making, this visit wouldn't have happened. Well, let, let me just ask Victor for a quick comment then. Victor, on 
the CTBT work, as well as the significance of the issue of nuclear nonproliferation that would ultimately be built upon some of these activities over time, both in Northeast Asia and the international stage, what does that mean for the Korean Peninsula, number one? And we talked about the visit of the president, Hiroshima. There is a mention of the Korean victims of that episode in the second paragraph of President Obama's speech. Can you just talk us through those two issues from the Korean's perspective? Sure. First, I mean, in terms of the Korean atomic bomb victims and survivors, Pibokchan, Korean, you know, there were 20,000 fatalities in Hiroshima, 30,000, I think, in Nagasaki. And then there are the survivors. And this has, you know, been one of the groups that have been marginalized throughout history, not receiving much help from either side, although that has changed more recently. So this story, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, is intimately tied to Korean history, not just to Japan and U.S.-Japan relations. Bringing up to the present, there have been a number of scholars who have argued that first the LTBT and then the CTBT is one of the potential entry points to a some sort of diplomatic negotiation between the United States and all the powers in the region with regard to North Korean nuclear weapons. If we could get North Korea to agree to sign on to the CTBT, just like South Korea and Japan, and as well as get China to sign on to it, this would be a great way to begin a conversation about how to get nuclear weapons off the Korean Peninsula. And I think most Americans would get comfort in knowing that North Korea would no longer be testing nuclear weapons. You know, they tested them largely underground, but I mean, to test them in the atmosphere or in space or underwater, no one wants to see that. So in that sense, what Caroline was talking about and the work that her father did after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, still resonates in Asia and can still possibly play a role in resolution of the issues on the Korean Peninsula. All right. Thanks, Victor. In other words, you know, we talk a lot kind of an inside out strategy almost with the North Koreans. This would dovetail with that and almost be outside in, get the international community to ring the North Koreans and basically enhance your on nuclear nonproliferation or nuclear disarmament, the Korean Peninsula. All right, Ambassador Kenny, back to you. You mentioned that one of the interesting elements, remarkable elements of your tenure in Tokyo is that you were the first female United States ambassador, woman ambassador in the history of this alliance between Washington and Tokyo. This is an issue, the role of women, especially in senior policymaking circles in both Korea and Japan, has been a bit of a struggle. There have been some notable exceptions, current Korean foreign minister, the governor of Tokyo, but you were the first in the ambassador seat in Tokyo. Can you talk about that experience and what that meant to you? It was, as people probably know, um, President Obama's first act in office was to sign the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And so women were a major area of focus during his administration. And Prime Minister Abe at that time was making a commitment to advance women's participation in Japanese society. So in that way, I think that my being there worked very well in that way. I think that there was definitely some skepticism, but I think that the fact that the importance of the role of the American ambassador really was, you know, overshadowed any concerns that somebody with long blonde hair would, you know, do something crazy. I don't know what it would like to be to be a man, but I think in some ways um, it was a real novelty. And I think, as I said before, because I was kind of from a a known area, and I had been a, such a strong supporter, an early supporter of President Obama, 
I think all of those things really helped. And I think that it did mean more than I realized at the time that a woman was in a, such a position of such high visibility. So I really made an effort to try to uh, meet and encourage and empower as many Japanese women as I could and students um, in particular, female students. And so I think that those efforts are continuing. I think they've maybe not receiving the same kind of emphasis as they were, but ultimately I think people really felt that partly because of the shrinking labor force, Japan was going to have to provide more opportunity for women and the different government departments and business people were always telling me uh, of the progress they were making uh, very proudly, even though, um, you know, I think uh, they have a long way to go. Was this something you emphasized in your conversations with Japanese counterparts in the government? Is this an issue that was at the top of your list? And how did you work this issue outside the government? Uh, well, I think just being there and doing the job was how I worked the issue. But I think that it really put the question to them. And I think they felt that they had to come forward with the progress they were making, especially because Prime Minister Abe had made it a major issue. And there was, you know, studies coming out showing how much of an impact, positive impact on Japanese GDP would mean if Japan had increased opportunity for women. So I think there was a momentum to it. And I think that to the extent that I was able to add to that, I think that was positive. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. Let me ask you decide whether or not to let me into the all-male club to which all American ambassadors had joined, though. That took many months of debate. Gotcha. And so, well, there, that, that's a whole nother That's a whole uh, other story. That's we a whole have episode. to do a whole other show on that. That's um, right. All right. I'll leave it at that. It's an interesting one. I, want, I wanted to pull on that thread, but we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to go to Stu. Sue, can you walk us through these issues, Korea, Japan, that Ambassador Kennedy just spoke to? And then a little bit more personally, what it meant to have Ambassador Kennedy there in Tokyo, Kathy Stevens, before her in Seoul, now Gina Haspel at the CIA, Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, National Security Advisors. Talk about that from your perspective, both as a professional coming up through the ranks in the national security agencies in Washington, but also your analysis of this issue in Northeast Asia. Thanks for that question. For me, and I think for many women out there, you know, when you see these women in these positions, of course, they serve as role models and inspiration. But they were the ones that really broke barriers, right? Either as the first, as you just mentioned, or the only women in these positions. Obviously, Secretary O'Brien is the first Secretary of State, and Gina Haspel now the first female CIA director. I remember when I started at the agency many years ago in 2001, I had women bosses, but CIA still lacked women in senior positions, right? Senior leadership positions. I think Jamie Mishik was the Deputy Director of Intelligence. That was the highest level for women. And I remember walking down this hallway, this long hallway. I don't know if you've ever been Langley, but there are all these portraits of directors and they're all white male, right? There's no women. So, I mean, it does absolutely uh, send a powerful signal. And of course, as with uh, Kathy Stevens, the first ambassador, female ambassador to South Korea, and now Caroline Kennedy is the first female U.S. ambassador to Japan. And now there were like, what, over 30 U.S. ambassadors to Japan. It's a powerful signal that we send to not only the United States, but to our allies. And for women out there, whether you're just starting out or you have been in national security space for a while, that there are pathway to these leadership positions, right? So, of course, they serve as role models. 
I do think we need a first female Secretary of Defense, so I'm crossing my fingers on that. But I think for countries like Japan and South Korea, as Ambassador Kennedy just talked about, you know, there have been some gains in recent years. Also, South Korea had first female president before the United States. But there's no question that I do think they still struggle with gender equality, greater diversity uh, issues. Women face significant challenges to get to these leadership positions, to these top tier posts. And I think it's particularly more so in this national security space, which is very heavily male dominated. So when these women are in the senior positions, you know, we do send an important message to South Korea, to Japan, to our allies, that, you know, women in these positions are not only necessary, but, you know, as these people work with people like Ambassador Kennedy, Ambassador Stevens, they also know that, you know, women can be as effective or more, sorry, Mark, uh, than even men. And, uh, you know, if you want ultimately innovation, if you want creativity, if you want effective problem solving, you need to avoid groupthink and, you know, to avoid blinds, but you need, that requires people from different backgrounds and more women in these seats and for women to take more leadership roles and more women to be present when these major decisions are made, particularly in national security. No, absolutely, Sue. Thanks for that. Great, great analysis. Great perspective. I'll take no offense at the dig uh, other than to say, you know, I invited you over to the residence. What did I do wrong? You know, you, you were there. You, we had a nice time. Uh, you had. You were very gracious. Thank you. You were very no, gracious. I'm sorry. Thanks. No, I appreciate it. In all seriousness, let's go to one more kind of these uh, these questions here. Ambassador Kennedy, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about your two visits to Korea. I think it, it was two when you were a sitting ambassador in Tokyo. You engaged with some high-level interlocutors. We actually did some unique cultural things. I think we went down to K-pop and met, I think it was Red Velvet. There was some cooking of dumplings to Korean food. You know, we did a mix, at least in one visit. And I know you also had another visit with when Ambassador Kim was in. And so just your impressions of Korea and those visits. I think I was really also extremely impressed with the Korean government officials that I met, the people who have been working on the Korea-Japan relationship and, you know, the dedication and the, that that takes and the, the recognition of the shared interests and the importance of the U.S. alliance. So on my first visit, I did go to the DMZ and got an appreciation for some of that. And then with you, we did some more of the people-to-people um, -people type exchanges, which were really valuable. And, and I think um, the continuing work that I've done is with Korea and Japanese high school students, where I started a kind of teleconference um, spoken word and poetry sharing. Both Japan and Korea have thousand-year-old poetic oral tradition, and I think that it's a way for those kids to connect and to share the things they have in common, whether it's family or faith or kind of rituals and uh, friendship and, you know, family pressure. Uh, so we've been meeting every six weeks for the last four years, and I did it also when I was there. And we've had some in-person meetings as well. Korean and Japanese students came here. Um, we've added students in Okinawa. And so there's this real shared experience of their parents and grandparents of, of the war and then the last many years of stability. So it's a it's a really powerful thing to see these kids connect. And I, and I feel like going forward, it will give them hopefully a, um, you know, learning about each other and problem solving together because that's going to be so critical in the years ahead. 
Thanks for that. Outstanding. And and what I would just add to that, just to comment, you and I are living proof that ambassadors come and go, <laughs> governments come and go. But what's lasting is the people to people relationship. And upon that foundation, policymaking is done. Uh, it's not done in a vacuum, as you and I know. And the more popular support you have for initiatives, the better and more durable that foundation is, the, the more resilient the relationship is. Uh, I always felt those were some of the most important work, uh, although it doesn't get all the press and attention. It's well, more of a long game. It's too sad. I think, you know, in the national security space is considered more uh, serious and um, important, obviously, and it is more male dominated. So this is more considered light and sort of something that women would do. But it is of long-term importance and significance. And I think that um, if there are ways to integrate it more into the national security space, um, just these kinds of connections or the recognition of the role that they play, it would serve us well. It's well put, well put. Uh, mine was baseball and my mother basically thought I spent the entire time in Korea, going to baseball games, drinking beer, and eating chicken. So, uh, you know. Well, we know that you spent your entire post-ambassadorship going to Korean baseball. <laughs> because every time we try to find you, you're in Korea going to a baseball game. So, <laughs> Guilty as charged. Um, all right. Uh, let's go to a, a couple of uh, policy topics here in, in our remaining time. We've been talking all about the trilateral relationship in terms of just some of the conversations we've been having. Let's bring that theme together, thread together. And I want to turn to Dr. Terry. We said at the outset of this broadcast that this trilateral relationship between the United States, Korea, and Japan is critical. It is absolutely critical. Can you just talk about some of the implications when that trilateral relationship is strong, when it is fraying? What are the, the regional implications of that? So I guess, you know, to put it very simply, U.S. rock japan trilateral relationship, obviously, is the foundation of American strategy in East Asia, right? It's the foundation where entire regional security, economic infrastructure has been constructed. So now for, for over 70 years, U.S. counted on both Japan and South Korea to be key allies, along with Australia. They're most important U.S. allies in, in East Asia. And during the Cold War, U.S. rock japan security relationship was really crucial to containing, you know, North Korea uh, and opposing North Korea and uh, even Moscow and China. And today, obviously, it's very important to oppose North Korea's aggression, the nuclear missile threats, and to provide counterweight to China, to a lesser extent to Russia. We know South Korea's concerns about China is not as severe as Japan's, but there's still anxiety in South Korea about China's rise and increasingly assertive behavior um, South Korea did last year, I think, boost spending on jet fighters after incidents such as you were the one last year when Chinese and the Russian bombers intruded into their airspace and they had to scramble fighters in response. Obviously, it's critical. But on the flip side, when there is a tension, as you mentioned, in this trilateral relationship and the strength of this alliance is frayed, you know, it becomes harder to coordinate a joint strategy to deal with North Korea, to deal with China. Uh, this is the case today. And this animosity between South Korea and Japan today, you know, bring tensions, as well as, the, I think, also growing tension between U.S. and South Korea, let's be honest, over the burden sharing issues and President Trump's demand of this vast increase in troop supportments for burden sharing from South Korea. You know, this undercuts the value of the trilateral relationship. But if I could just say one thing about Korea-Japan before I, I just pop, um, 
I just want to point out that Korea-Japan relationship can be in a better place. And in the past, when you look at the history, there were times when it was in a better place, right? Um, so public perceptions are constantly in a flux. They change. A decade ago, polling showed that South Koreans viewed Japan more favorably than even or as favorably as China. Well, of course, that's not the case today. But that's just a, it shows you that the public perceptions do change. In the 1990s, Korea-Japan relations was much in a better place, right, with the Kono Statement of 1993, the, the Murayama Apology in, in 1995, in 1998, the, Kim Dae-jung and Obuchi Declaration, which really improved ties and cultural contact and cooperation, which positively affected each other's perception. So even the co-hosting of the World Cup in 2002. So my point is, I do think that it's possible uh, given the right conditions. So while I do feel a little bit pessimistic today in terms of you know, where Korea-Japan's relations is, I just wanted to sort of point out there that it can change. You just need the right conditions and the right motivations. All right. Well, let me go back to Ambassador Kennedy on that because, Sue, you made a really interesting point there on the conditions. And part of the conditions is the external environment and things that maybe lessen the United States control. But the other piece is the diligent diplomatic work that those who are in Embassy Seoul, those in Embassy Tokyo, Washington, are working on together. Ambassador Kennedy, by the end of your tenure, things were in a better place, not perfect, but had, in my view, improved between Seoul and Tokyo. Could you talk a little bit about some of the effort that was done during your tenure on those issues and your involvement in that? Uh, well, you were certainly a, a big part of that. I think um, having the American ambassadors from China, Japan, and Korea get together a few times a year was important, having frequent phone calls whenever there's a North Korean provocation, trilateral. Also, there was a lot of work going on at that point on Chisomia and things like that. And so I think that the United States, President Obama was very clear that the United States was there to support and help that Japan-Korea relationship, not to, not to be too heavy-handed. But I think that the support of the United States is very important, and it's a constant I'd say, focus of the job, and everybody on this phone call has worked on that. And so I think that whether it was economic issues, security issues, were all, I would say, something that I spent a lot of time on. It was also, as, as we said, when I was there, there was, I think people had been very concerned about Prime Minister Abe and that relations were going to worsen. But in fact, he turned out to be, you know, fairly practical after, a, um, and um, his statement on the 70th anniversary was better than might have been. And, um, and I think that his recognition of uh, his appearance at the ceremony for Japan career relations, there were small steps, but they were all going in one direction. And I think that the uh, comfort women agreement that was at the very end of 2000, 15. And that was a surprise when it came. And I think that it showed that he really was taking a practical approach. And he and President Park were had met at the nuclear security summit, etc. So I think that there was a the foundation was beginning to be laid, even though there were still difficulties, the UN or other places. So it, it just takes constant work and a recognition that this is a difficult relationship. And um, with a lot of history and the United States needs to be humble, but that we do have a positive role to play 
in supporting the values that we all share, democracy and human rights and um, stability in Asia. So it was a major focus, and I know I worked with you closely on it, but you really did uh, a lot as well, um, Ambassador Lippert. So it, uh, really, you should speak about it just as much as me. Well, no, thanks, Ambassador Kenny, for the, the kind words and really interesting uh, perspective. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the role that Tony Blinken played as Deputy Secretary of State, was constantly in the region, constantly convening uh, trilateral meetings with, at the vice foreign minister level, and that was a tremendous help as well. So let me go to Victor then. Victor, where do things stand today on the, both the trilateral relationship and you know the, the relationship between Seoul and Tokyo? Big question. And then do you think things will change if Vice President Biden wins uh, this fall and becomes the next president of the United States? So uh, your second question, I think the answer is yes, it will change in part because, as Ambassador Kennedy said, the United States will probably play a more active, though respectful and behind the scenes and not heavy handed role in trying to bring our two allies together. As you mentioned, I think the, the best thing that could be done for trilateral relations was exactly what Tony Blinken did was to hold, I think they were quarterly, quarterly trilateral deputy secretary, vice foreign minister meetings, because that forces the government bureaucracies in all three countries to prepare and produce deliverables for each of those four meetings. And that creates a momentum in the relationship that's you know currently not there today. Let me also say that as an outsider watching both of you uh, in Seoul and Tokyo, uh, working on the alliances as well as the trilateral relationship and the Comfort Women Agreement. It reminded me a lot of the role that the United States was playing in bringing Korea and Japan together in 1964-65 normalization, um, where you know there were, there were positive public statements that the United States officials could make, but it was all the behind-the-scenes stuff that they were doing. You know, trying to convince Foreign Minister Shina that he needed to come to Seoul to meet his counterpart, even though his counterpart was half his age, you know, and because the, the South Korean foreign minister would not go to Tokyo to meet China. I mean, it's all these, I don't want to say little, but all these subtle, but very important things to bring two sides together and to help both sides cut through what I think are the two primary obstacles to improvements in Korea-Japan relations. And that is the media, in both countries and the politicians, not the policy makers, but the politicians. It helps, you know, helps both sides cut through that when they know the common ally of the United States uh, is working very hard behind the scenes to make things happen. Today, you know, the relationship unfortunately is not in a very good place. You know, we, we'll have a decision coming in August with regard to whether there'll be nationalization of Japanese assets in Korea, which would be a new low in the relationship. It's very hard to dig out from under that on both sides. Uh, Jisomia, as Ambassador Kane said, is, you know, it's there, it's still in place between Korea and Japan, but, you know, Korea still reserved the right to end that at any time. And there still is, you know, not a very good relationship, unfortunately, between President Moon and Prime Minister Abe. The irony of all this is, I think, if you put as Master Kenny does with her work, if you put Koreans and Japanese in the same room, they will get along. I mean, it's just all the other stuff that gets in the way. And that's unfortunate for the United States because, and I believe this when I was in government, the US policy in Asia, it starts and it ends with our trilateral relationship with our ally. Any new policy initiative, it starts with 
consulting with Korea and Japan, and it finishes with consulting with Korea and Japan. You know, and whether that's North Korea, whether that's shaping China's rise, in terms of the global agenda, there's no more overlap, I think, among three countries in the world than there are is between the United States, Korea, and Japan. So it's just, you know, it's a shame that it's gone the way it has. Thanks, Victor, for that analysis. And it dovetails with the next set of questions that we want to get to, and really our final set before we we'll try it, we'll get some questions from the audience and at the end. But just we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit more about North Korea talked around the margins on it. And we usually do quick updates on what the North Koreans are up to and what's going on on the peninsula. Sue to you, um, we've had some interesting developments over the past couple of weeks since we've last met. We had very harsh statements out of North Korea against an October surprise and reacting to the Deputy Secretary Began visit in the region. We have a new national security team in Seoul. Uh, which was of interest in Pyongyang, apparently. And we also had this news of the sole prosecutor opening a probe into the North Korean leader's sister over the liaison office uh, demolition. What's the, the latest here, Sue, on very good, uh, or, or what's the latest on this very important topic? So there's a lot going on here. So after the North blew up the liaison office, Kim Jong-un pressed the pause button, and you just mentioned Kim Yo-jong released this very lengthy, extremely strange, actually, rambling, uh, long statement. Writing style was very strange. It was almost like a diary, like kind of a teenage girl uh, who was upset. But, and there's a different interpretation about that. What was she, what is she trying to say there? I read a Fred Kaplan piece saying, you know, this means that, you know, they are absolutely putting a stop to October surprise. Kim Yo-jong did put an end to the negotiation, even by saying even the smallest concessions are now off the table. Even if Trump changes his mind and says he will, he will take what was offered from Hanoi, North Korea is not into that anymore. You know, now America has to end all its hostile policy. And Victor knows what hostile policy means. That means like everything, right? It's like withdrawing U.S. troops. It's like, you know, nuclear capable forces. Even now, I mean, like it's, it's the whole shebang. But yet... You know, with the North Koreans, you have to read between the lines, right? You have to read the context. You say how it was said. And if you read between the lines, she didn't completely close the window for another summit between Trump and Kim. Uh, she did leave a window open for possible 11th hour deal, potentially. Uh, they don't want Hanoi, repeat of Hanoi 2.0, where they leave empty handed and they get embarrassed again. But you know, she did leave the window open. And then I thought the last statement was really weird and strange when she said, uh, you know, I got a permission from my brother to personally obtain a DVD of the celebration of the 4th of July. I'm like, personally obtain? Does she even want to be invited to Washington, D.C.? Remember, the whole summitry began with her being sent to South Korea. So it's just a little bit of a mixed message. Victor can talk more about it. He wrote also a piece on MSNBC saying, you know, October surprise is possible. Meanwhile, the new lineup in South Korea is interesting, right? We have new unification minister who just because right after the liaison office thing, South Korea replaced it with Lee Young, the new unification minister. Im Jong-suk is now the special advisor on diplomatic and foreign affairs. 
we have someone as a new national security advisor and new NIS director is Park Ji-won, who was, of course, responsible for the first summit in 2000 uh, between Kim Dae-jung and Kim Jong-il. So the North Koreans came up with a statement saying, you know, this new lineup, particularly referring to Im Jong-suk uh, and the new unification minister as you know, promising. So, you know, I think it's, it's just a lot going on there. And your whole thing about South Korea just now, you know, prosecutor opening up, you know, saying they're going to now look into Kim Yo-jong's role of demolishing this liaison office. I think that's kind of South Korea trying to show that they have a little bit of a spine in light of the fact that they have this whole new security lineup. South Koreans are obviously really interested in making progress on inter-Korea front. And they are very hopeful that President Trump will meet with Kim, De- uh, Kim Jong-un again before uh, the November election. I don't know. Okay. Maybe Victor okay. has thoughts. Mark, could I just add just one, yeah. one thing? And that is that I think we, on the last program, we talked about the so-called October surprise. And it was right after that, the uh, Vice Foreign Minister Che Sun-hee put out this statement saying that, you know, some people talk about the October oh. surprise. So clearly she's watching our show. We know her like she was my negotiating counterpart when I was doing six party talks. She's more than welcome to join us on the show anytime (laughs) she wants. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks, Victor. Good stuff. We're basically out of time, but I do have a couple of questions. So I hate to truncate this conversation because on North Korea, because it's extremely interesting. But in the interest of of wrapping up and answering some audience questions, let me um, pivot uh, to questions quickly here. And not surprising, most are uh, for Ambassador Kennedy. We have three questions. I'll give two to her and I'll give one to Victor. Ambassador Kennedy, your top experience memories in Tokyo? Uh, Well, I think the Hiroshima visit by President Obama would obviously be number one. And then I should just remind people that Prime Minister Abe did go to Pearl Harbor a few months later. Um, But I think that sense uh, and the outpouring on the part of the people of Japan, even though there had been some concern before as to whether or not the visit would be, you know, helpful and would cause problems. But I think that just the fact that it took 70 years to happen, but it did happen, really, I think, should remind us all that these relationships are complicated and difficult and painful, and um, that reconciliation is really a goal that is worth striving for. Oh, great stuff. Interesting. It wasn't the weekly phone calls from your counterpart in Seoul? <laughs> no. Okay. The uh, Victor, let me go to you with the second question. How do regional allies view increased defense investment by Japan in its uh, armed forces? I think they view it with suspicion. I I think on the one hand, it has long been a mandate within the U.S.-Japan alliance for Japan to shoulder more of defense responsibility, both in the alliance and in the region. Really going back to the the end of the Second World War, beginning of the Cold War, that that was even a narrative in U.S.-Japan relations. But for the region, it's still, you know, they have long memories and there's still concern. I think a lot of it will depend on what sort of capabilities Japan is looking to acquire. And of course, you know, the stated intentions. I think we all know there still is a lot of history there and the suspicions continue. No, thanks, Victor. And Ambassador Kennedy, back to you. Very similar question uh, that I asked you just a few minutes ago, but from the lens of Seoul. Your impressions, favorite things about your visits to Korea? Uh, well, I, you know, of course, heard so much in Japan about Korea. And, um, and then getting there, I had met 
not many people, but the people that I met um, were all so um, welcoming, impressive, and um, interesting. And I've had a chance to do a little work with the Korean diaspora here since I returned, just in terms of trying to promote trilateral harmony, just, you know, uh, here at home as well. I think the Korean American community in New York in particular is so passionate about Korea, helping Koreans here in America. And it's really an inspiring immigrant community. And I've really enjoyed getting to know some of those people and uh, the work that they do here. It's really tough. It's much more difficult, although the Korean community here is very successful and thought to be so. There's a lot of hardship there too. And I think that the way that the community functions and helps each other is really inspiring. And it reminds me of kind of what it must have been like for my ancestors when they came kind of first generation and had to navigate a whole new culture. So I've really enjoyed that um, in a way that I hadn't expected. It's been a great gift. So Korea is, is becoming a bigger part of my life than I would have thought. And it's great. Um, I haven't seen enough of Ambassador Lippert, but now perhaps after this, uh, you know, we'll be able to make dumplings again together. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. With that positive note, we're going to go out on this week's episode of the Capitol Cable. We really do appreciate Ambassador Kennedy as our special guest. It was, I, I would call it a remarkable session, covered a lot about the trilateral relationship, U.S.-Japan relations, U.S.-ROK relationship, even squeezed in a little bit on North Korea and extended an invitation, thanks to Victor. And uh, again, I think we went out on people to people, which I am a huge believer in, and just the importance of that. And I really did appreciate the robust conversation we had on that today. So with that, Thanks to our special guest. Thanks to our panelists. Thanks to everybody. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. And until then, stay safe, healthy, and happy. Thanks for listening. To watch full episodes of The Capital Cable, please go to csis.org and visit the Korea Chair Program page. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.